All right, before I uh, start, uh, I'm going to say a prayer, and then I'll review a little bit about what we did last time, and then catch up, and then hopefully use most of the time talking about uh, Isaac Newton. So let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we open up our hearts and our minds and admit that uh, thy truth is larger than what we both can comprehend and fully obey. We pray that these things that we do here, not only in this classroom, but throughout all the fellowship and activity and worship of this church, will expand our minds and hearts to be more appreciative, uh, more in awe, and more in love with thy many truths. This I ask in thy name. Amen. Amen. All right, come in. Have a seat. Uh, Remember, I mentioned... Last Sunday, that is if you were here last Sunday, if you're not, I'll go ahead and say this. Uh, I'm doing this series to sort of counterbalance what I did last spring in which we looked at the new atheists who have been very influential throughout our society and have made a case that if you really believe in science, you cannot believe in God. You cannot. The two are mutually exclusive. If you believe in God, it's superstition, irrational, traditional, authoritarian, but it's not bound upon reason or upon what science can give us. I obviously think that is wrong. And what I'm doing in this series is to show uh, some theological foundations for modern science, and then we'll be looking at some very influential science scientists and to see how their religious beliefs have shaped the way and why they are the scientists that they are. All right. Now, just a little overview of what I did last time. Uh, if we want to think about modern science, we can retrace our steps and see how it all got to be where it is today. Of course, modern science is very diverse, very complicated, and you know some scientists in one field can't even talk with scientists in another field. It's not that they all are doing the very same thing. A lot of it is entirely dependent upon the object of their study, but we do think there is a way of doing scientific knowledge. Well, this has a long history, and by paying attention to this history, I think we can learn something not only about why science works and is effective as it is, but also something about our faith. I think there are primarily two major causes for modern science, and they all start back in antiquity. I had uh, mentioned uh, the influence of Aristotle, <clears throat> and that is indeed the case. Uh, he and Plato are probably the two greatest intellectual influences in Western civilization. Aristotle's emphasis on the study of experience emphasizes a knowledge adjusted to the world and in a way what we know as modern science really sort of begins there back 2,300 years ago. But the other major influence is there in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That is, at the heart of the biblical faith about God is that God is a creator and that the world is a creation. That God creates the world in an orderly fashion. Just by reading Genesis 1 and 2, we see this. That is, there's light all the way down to organic life. Organic life requires inorganic life. Inorganic life requires light and so on. There's an orderliness to this. But the world is not eternal. It's not made by permanent laws. It's contingent. It's utterly dependent upon God. So the two great claims of the biblical faith is that God is a creator who's made the world orderly, but creation is contingent. It's not permanent. It's in process. It changes. It's in the state of becoming. Both of those truths are there. Both of them there. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. And the biblical faith then is based on this conviction that there's order and there's contingency. 
We cannot make the world God or eternal, but we cannot say it is chaotic and random either. It is orderly but contingent at the same time. Just quickly, I, I said that was a great influence on Christian thinking. Uh, Aristotle's influence was still being felt throughout the ancient world Aristotle was being studied. Uh, but Plato was also being studied. And from the Platonic view, people looked at the world as though it were just a symbol of eternal truths. It didn't look at the contingent laws of, of, of physical reality. It wanted to look beyond physical reality into these eternal, immutable truths. And so the world was seen to be a symbol. But the Aristotelian, Aristotelian strand, though, was wanting to study the physical causes and motions of the world and understand the laws appropriately. That Aristotelian influence had a big influence, as I had mentioned to you, at the school of Alexandria. Now, there were a number of schools, but there was a very prominent and successful, long-lasting Christian school at Alexandria. And the greatest physicist that came out of um, Alexandria was this man, uh, St. Philipponus. Uh, I mean, John Philipponus. He wasn't uh, canonized as a saint. Okay, that's enough about him. I've got to move on. And I, uh, he had a big influence, and I think I stopped here with William of Ockham, who was a Franciscan a logician, philosopher, theologian, and he had a big influence on the development of science. Just quickly, though, uh, Ockham was a very complicated thinker, and you can take William of Ockham in different, ang different directions, and some people don't like him, some people see him as the ruin of modernity, and so on. Uh, however, though, in the development of science, he had some very significant positive contributions. Remember I had said the Platonic strand wanted to look at the world as though it was already fixed. It was already established according to these permanent laws. The approach to nature then was if you could come up with a logical deduction, nature has to fit that logical deduction. If something is necessarily true by logic, it must be physically true. And so the world then was made to conform to logic. Now that made it very sort of stilted. Uh, it wasn't very deep had main rare general, couldn't look at a lot of the sort of messy details of our experiences. And so there was a reaction against this, and Occam was one of it. Remember I mentioned the Occam's razor, shave off those unnecessary universals. Well, what that meant in the development of science is that we have to adjust our thinking to our experience, not experience to our thinking. Our logic must conform to the contingent realities, to our particular experiences that we have. And this started a major change in thinking, and Occam was the intellect that really perpetuated that there in the 14th century. Uh, that is, the essence of science now is not that you come up with a logical formula and see if the world conforms to it, but you adjust your thinking, your logic, your reasoning to the experience itself. Uh, one other thing, quickly. Uh, well, no, I'm going to skip that because I'm going to talk about this man, and it will come up with him even more so. Francis Bacon, tremendous intellect. In some ways, you can make a case that he is really the, the originator of modern science. It's because he champions the inductive method. That is, reasoning is not deductive and then applied to science. Reasoning is inductive because of what it knows about nature. So you make inductive conclusions. You know, deductive reasons from universal laws to particulars, like all people are mortal. Socrates is a person, therefore Socrates is mortal. That's a deductive argument. An inductive argument is where you start with particular experiences. Like we see ten birds, they're all crows, they're all black, and I come to the conclusion that all crows are blackbirds. You move from particular to universal. Um, Francis Bacon made that the hallmark of the investigation of experience of the world. 
inductive reasoning. Now, one of the one of the things that had to be shifted, and, and uh, there were unfortunate consequences from this, but I can see why it had to be shifted, and that was to give up what's called final causes. Now, I know it's it's been a week since I mentioned that to you, but remember Aristotle said there were four causes. That is, if you want to understand why things move, change, whatever, that uh, the way and the do, you ask four questions. What's the efficient cause? Who did it like the carpenter hammers the nail? The material cause, that is the carpenter uses wood. The formal cause, that is the blueprint that the carpenter follows to build a house. And then the final cause, and that's the purpose. That is somebody wants to build, I mean, live in this house, and that's why the house exists. Well, those notion of causality then were applied in the Middle Ages to everything, everything in nature, not just you, not just us, but trees, animals, plants, stars, everything had a final cause, a purpose to it. Now, theologically, I believe that. Uh, I, do, I believe that because I do think God has created the world orderly. But it's hard to get the contingency, the relevance, sometimes the chaos of our experience to yield a final cause, an explanation of what its purpose is. And so Bacon said we need to get rid of that. That's hindering our, our investigation of, of physical causes in the world. And so from that point on, that whole pursuit of final causes, that a scientist are not going, and they shouldn't, by the way, tell us what the purpose of the world is. That's not their purview. That's not part of their agenda. They'll tell us what the efficient cause is. They'll tell us maybe the material cause, perhaps somewhat of the formal, but they won't tell us what the purpose of life is. That's beyond what a scientist can tell us. And this is what Francis Bacon really started. Uh, look at, um, it's not up there. Look at number four there. He's famous for this. And this too had a big influence on the development of science. Number four there. It's what he called the four idols. Uh, interesting word there. Idols are false. We want to treat them as though they're permanent or eternal or divine somewhat, but they're false. They're bogus. We have four such things in our life. The first one there is the, the, the idol of the tribe, and that's where... Uh, we have collective biases that influence us, and we're unaware of those. We've got to be aware of that. If you're going to do science, you first of all have to step back and be aware of the collective biases. Then there's what's called the idol of the cave, and that's your own individual bias, your own upbringing, your context, your own prejudices that have influenced you. Good science always backs up and tests those, is my conclusion here being shaped by my own prejudices. Then the idol of the marketplace, and that's the role that language has. That language is, um, uh, 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 is not fixed. It's always in, in some ways flux, and it will end up expressing you know, biases and prejudices in society. And a lot of people think just because if you can say something clearly, it must be true. Well, that's not right. Yeah. I know a lot of clear-headed idiots like myself. Uh, just because you can say something very exactly doesn't mean it's true. So we've got to be aware of that. We test all our words to see if they really do carry weight. And then finally, the, uh, theater, uh, the idol of the theater, and that's uh, sophistry, where people go around selling these bogus ideas, convincing us, uh, and because we're too unwitting, uh, we buy into these truths, and that's the idol of the theater. Good science always starts off with this sort of critical position towards those. All right. <clears throat> now let me talk about this man, Isaac Newton. He was, um, I think, 43 when this painting uh, was painted by a famous painter named Kellner. Isaac Newton obviously is one of the major influences in Western civilization. 
And uh, he represents in some ways the, the final move into what we call modernity, out of the medieval period into modernity. Of course, Occam and Francis Bacon were moving us along that way. But with Isaac Newton, we find a, a, a first-class intellect basing knowledge upon what science can tell us about the world. Now, there's that transition, though. I want to fill in that little gap there for just a minute. Uh, and I'm not alone in saying this. I hope I've made somewhat a case for this to be a plausible claim, that to move into modern science, we have to admit that these early giants like Newton and others really adopted the medieval idea of God. Now, of course, they refined it. They got rid of some of it that was not you know, reasonable, but they adopted what I had started off the class with, this great biblical claim that there is a God who created the world in an orderly way. Modern science adopts the medieval notion that God is a creator. The world manifests some sense of order, some sense of design to it. And science then grows out of that commitment that inherent into this contingent, somewhat chaotic world in which we live in is an order to it. Now, of course, not all scientists these days will agree with that. But modern science is, 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 grown, is born out of that commitment inherited from the medieval church, which was inherited from the early church, which was inherited from the scriptures. That God has created in an orderly way. Though it's contingent, it's in a state of process and becoming, nonetheless it manifests a particular order to it. Isaac Newton's thinking is based upon that. Just a few things about him. Uh, interesting guy, uh, <clears throat> if you ever studied much. I mean, I am no real authority on Isaac Newton. I, I got a library, I went to our library and got a biography and it's about 600 pages and I thought, maybe I ought to read that before I talk about him. <laughs> um, and I thought, I don't have enough time. I should. So I, I'll say right off, I am not an authority on Isaac Newton. Some of you may know a lot more about what him. But I do know quite a bit about what he says about religion and, and science. Oh, he was born to a farmer. His, di his father died two months before he was born, raised uh, by his mother. And then eventually she remarried and moved off and... He stayed with his maternal grandparents and was raised there in uh, Woolstrup, which um, is uh, near Grantham. There's a trivia quiz. What's the most famous abbey around Grantham? <laughs> Downton Abbey. Uh, be that as it may. Uh, <clears throat> he was a precocious child, very bright. And uh, he eventually, uh, his uncle recommended, who also had a Cambridge degree, that he enter Trinity College in Cambridge. Uh, great college, very old. Any of you ever been there? You know, when you walk into the gates, there's that little tree. Supposedly, that's an apple tree from which the apple... Of course, that's, that's apocryphal, but it's an interesting story. Um, but he was a, a prime student, just extraordinary student at Trinity, and he studied uh, the classics, you know, Latin, Greek, but he really, really studied a lot of Aristotle. And by 27 years of age, he had been out of Cambridge just, I think, four and a half years he got his bachelor's. He was already esteemed to be the brightest guy there. And so the man who held this very prestigious chair in mathematics stepped aside. He knew that his former student uh, was far brighter than he. His name was Burroughs. And so at the age 27, he becomes, in a sense, the center of sort of intellectual life there in Great Britain, taking on this uh, professor of mathematics. Now, he was so erudite, and I don't know what kind of lecture he was, but it was said that he lectured in empty rooms all the time because people didn't understand what he was talking about. <laughs> uh, it was during this time that he really discovered calculus. 
uh, one of the interesting stories in the history of science is that there was someone else discovering calculus at this time. I'll give you a breathman if you can tell me who that is. Who? Yeah, okay, you get the breathman. I knew there'd be some smart people in here. Leibniz was a German philosopher, theologian in some ways. And he too had come up with a principle of uh, calculus. A little different. I, I've always heard this. I, one, of the, one of the deficiencies, I guess maybe in my life, but this is about number 99, frankly, uh, is that I didn't study calculus. I, I, I keep telling myself, before I retire, I'm going to take a course in calculus. Uh, well, Leibniz came up with the principle of calculus, a little more cumbersome than Newton. There was a real heated rivalry between the two, by the way. They were pretty irascible towards each other. Be that as it may, in, in 1671, he writes this book on calculus. I know some of you have taken calculus. When you took calculus, did they say this is Newtonian calculus? They said there was a terrific rivalry and dispute that lasted about 20 or 30 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah they were never reconciled either. Okay, well, uh, but the big book, though, the one that really, I, I guess you could say in the history of Western civilization, there have been four or five books, I'd include the scriptures in them as well, the Bible, that have really, really altered, changed, pushed civilization a certain way, and that's one of them. In 1687, he, he uh, published Principia Mathematica. Uh, the Principles of uh, Natural Mathematics, and gave it the Latin title. Also, it was written all in Latin, and somebody once said that it was the last major textbook in Western civilization written entirely in Latin. Kind of interesting why he did that. Well, uh, he um, represented Cambridge in the Parliament, so he had some political aspirations. And uh, in 1699, he became Warden of the Mint. Now, I'm not really what that means. Uh, I, I don't think it means breath mints. I don't think it means that. It's a little more significant than that. Later on, he actually becomes uh, the uh, the dean of the mint. Uh, you know, in churches there are wardens and deans. I guess maybe in the uh, what what would uh, a mint would be someone printing money. I guess in the our coining. yeah the coining yeah that's right. So this made him a very very influential person, and in fact it endowed him and made him semi wealthy uh, for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah, so I do. His interest in politics got him there. Right, well, and they, they knew how bright he was. I mean, if he could write Principia Mathematica, he could also, you know, mint those coins just right, too. <laughs> but, well, he's elected to be president of the Royal Society in 1703, which was, you know, the, the, the Mensa of Great Britain there in the 18th century. And you know, all the bright people were there. And it was really based upon a principle of, of um, using science to glorify God. And they knew that he was part of that, and he is elected into it, and it becomes queen. I mean, becomes the president, and then finally is a knighted uh, Queen Anne in 1705. And so, major influence. I mean, he, he was a recluse. He did a lot of his stuff in, in solitude. He's very, very protective of his privacy. I've read. And then when he moved to London, he, he sort of grew disaffected with Cambridge. Uh, most of his private life was sort of taken away from him because now he had become a world figure. Um, any been to Westminster Abbey? Okay. Did you see his grave there? There are jillions of important people there. Uh, but there it is. And Alexander Pope wrote this epithet. Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be and all was light. <clears throat> Maybe that sounds a little vain, but uh, there is great truth to that. That um, 
what Newton was able to do with his calculus was able to apply it to experiences and to tease out, to pull, to solicit, to articulate, to conceptualize the kind of rules, patterns, or laws of nature that are embedded in our experience. He used math, a very exact, precise form of knowledge, to faithfully conjure out, that's the wrong word, sort of a cultic, but to intellectualize, conceptualize the laws of nature. And so in a sense, he made clear to us a lot of our experiences in the physical world. Um, <clears throat> this is when he's 83. That's not a very... Yeah, why don't you turn off one of those lights, Gil, please? Uh, maybe we can see that a little clearer. Well, it's still not all that clear. I thought I had it clear, but he's 83, dies at 84 in 1727. And so when he was uh, president of the Royal Society, they had this painted. Hey, you remember these, don't you? Everybody studied those. Uh, law of inertia says that something stays in a continuous state unless it's been altered by something. That's considered to be a fundamental law of all moving things. And the law of force is mass times acceleration. Mass plus acceleration constitutes the force of something. And then the law of action and reaction. For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction that the world is constituted all moving things according to these laws. Now, those sound rather simple. We've been hearing these since, what, elementary school maybe. It's just ingrained in the way we think about the world. But this was quite revolutionary. And if you, if you ever look at Principia, roughly 500 pages, 192 mathematical propositions to prove that those three laws are actually true. These are, in some ways, beyond doubt. In terms of large experiences, now, there are some scientists in here, and some of you have studied science. You know that a lot of contemporary science, in particular quantum physics, is saying things are not quite as neat as Newton's laws of motion say they are. It's sort of the, sort of the general observation of the world that you and I have. If you and I got a telescope, you and I got you know, a, a, a way to trot, uh, trace the stars and, and planets and so on, these are immutable. But as you know, and uh, Einstein came on with his great theories of special and general relativity and showed that in the, the farthest reach of what light does at the speed of light, these laws don't necessarily hold. They don't necessarily hold. That, now, you would never know that, though. I wouldn't. From just a, a person standing on planet Earth, these laws are immutable to us. And we also know about quantum physics in the very narrow world down in, in terms of electrical forces making atoms work and so on. There's a lot of probability. There's a lot of sort of indeterminacy or uncertainty about it. Now, uh, that, that's out of my league, I have to admit. I'm fascinated by that. At one end, the world seems, from this big perspective, working according to these rather immutable laws of motion. But when we get very narrow and very focused, there's a lot of probability. Well, which is it? Interesting enough, we live in two worlds simultaneously, a world of necessity and a world of probability. All right, uh, but this is perhaps one of the most interesting things that he's, he came up with, and that's the law of gravity. What makes the three laws of motion what they are and why he felt that they were immutable is because of this force. Now, what was revolutionary about this, I think I touched on this last time, forever and ever, in order to account for, for motion and change of movement, people were postulating things like ether, or there had to be physical things causing physical things to move. 
How do we account for motion, especially in these, these grand schemes of things like stars and planets? How do we do that? We always know that like, for this to move, I have to move it. All right. Uh, is that what causes all things to move? Well, he, 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 uh, he was able to sort of step out of that and look at it from another angle, another perspective. And he said, well, let's postulate, instead of objects moving objects, what we have is a force attracting objects. Let's see if that can explain things a little better. It's not that, you know, that apple when it dropped on his head, you know, shook up a few neurons and all of a sudden he saw gravity in his head. No, he, he, he inquired, he speculated, he, he pursued, he scrutinized, and adjusted his thinking according to the, the, the structure of his experience, and he came up with this famous law of gravity. Force of gravity between two bodies is proportional to their masses and inversely proportional to the square of their separation. And there's the symbolic form. One mass weighs this much. One mass weighs that much. Separated by that distance. You time the two masses. You divide it by the square of the distance. And then you understand gravity. Now, so far that has worked very well in explaining what we know as objects in motion. These principles of gravity. Now, a couple of things about this. According to Newton, gravity is the basic force of the world. And he felt it makes the world predictable. That is, the reason why we know motion occurs according to three laws is because of the gravitational pull. Newton felt, and many people took this in ways in which he didn't want it to be, but he felt, if you could tell me the motion and the mass of all objects, I can tell you exactly what they're going to do in the future. Almost like pool balls on a pool table. If you're really good at knowing the angles and the force, you can predict where those all, all those balls are going to go. Newton felt like the world was ordered in a certain way in which that was possible. Through the laws of motion based upon this law of gravity, we can understand the order of the world. It's possible to do that. Uh, but one thing, is this number two? Yeah, number two. One thing that he would not do, he was, he was pressed on this some, but he punted. Well, that's not the right word. He... Uh, he remained silent about that which he could not speak clearly. And that is, where did gravity come from? Where did it come from? If, if all motion is caused by gravity, and gravity is not a moving thing, but an attracting force, then what causes gravity? And he says, we, we, we don't know. We don't know what causes that. There is no scientific explanation for gravity. But he did say, and I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, uh, that because of gravity that has shaped the three laws of motion, that nature is a law-abiding machine. And that's a big metaphor that really takes over modern science. Nature is a machine operating by mechanistic laws. Now, he wanted to add to that. He didn't want to say only that, but he does say that, that the world's a machine. Just like you got in your car, you drove, you turned on your car. If you were a good auto mechanic, you could know what happens as soon as you turn that key, da 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 da, da and your wheels start to move. All right. If we could know through the laws of motion, all these masses here, we could pretty well predict things out because it's going to follow like a machine laws. Uh, but Newton, though, had another motive for this. And this is what I want us to appreciate about him. And I do think there is a very good lesson to be learned from this. And that is, he says this, he not only puts it in the, uh, uh, I want to say introduction or preface, one of those, uh, to Principia, and he says this to his friends, he says this to the Royal Society in London, 
that he wrote the Principia Mathematica to show the dependency of matter on God. That's what he wanted to do. All this is to show that there is a God who's made the world in this orderly way. That it does seem like everything's in motion. From a particular observational point of view, things seem rather chaotic. But in fact, there is an order made there by God. Now, with that, let's back over or step aside and think about what kind of theology then would inform this science, this way of giving a mathematical explanation of the universe that could account for a basic force that's the underlying physical cause of everything that has ordered the world according to the laws of motion. He says that there is a theology to it. He does. Now, we'll have to take him at his word. You may disagree with him theologically, but he argues that it was his theology that shaped his science, not his science shaping his theology. Um, Number one, he called his theology dominion theology. These days there are other connotations to that word dominion. But what he meant by dominion theology is that God is a creator of the world and rules it as a king would rule a kingdom. God has dominion over the world. The world exists entirely because there is a creator, not just in its initial state, but also in its very special providential state. Every moment, according to Newton, depended upon God's presence being there. Uh, Only in the mind of God is it predetermination. Newton did not say like a clockwork. Leibniz criticized him, by the way, not only because he disagreed with calculus, but he disagreed with his theology. But it's a complete misunderstanding of Newton. And it's a subtle shift here. And it takes, you know, really sort of controlled thinking to understand, I think, what he wants to say. But it, it from, from an angle, and it's not Newton's angle, and this is where Leibniz criticized, it looks like God made a watch, wound it up, kind of watches it sort of go on and sort of wind down and goes, winds it up again. Newton said all this is, is God is kind of a, a, repair, a watch repairman. That's not his image. That's not his image. Every moment depends upon the creative being of God. Every moment is an expression of the rationality of God. It's not that God made the world and then lets it run according to its immutable laws, but that all aspects and all laws are an expression of God's continual presence. Someone asked him once... He sustained That's right. That's right. He's not above us winding clocks. We are within God. Someone once... Uh, you remember... You, this, this is fairly well, I think, known... Uh, Laplace, who was a famous astronomer, accompanied Napoleon on one of his journeys. I'm not sure why, I forget. And he was doing some calculations about some planets. And uh, Napoleon asked him, where's God and all that? And um, Laplace said, well, I have no need for God. I have no need for God. Well, somebody asked Newton this. Where's God in this big picture you've painted here with Principia Mathematica? And his answer was telltale. I think it, this is the instructive part. God is in between. God is in between things. Not above, not beyond, but in between. Reality is an expression of the divine power, of the creative rational impulses of a creator. That is not that God and the world are separate. Like, like a, 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 a watchmaker may make a watch to be separate. But um, it's an, uh, what's a better analogy? I... 
I looked around. I, like I said, if I were a real scholar, I might be able to find this better. I was looking for a better analogy. The machine model of the universe tricks us a little bit. We want to think just like, you know, if you buy a car, you, you buy it from some car makers. And so the car maker is separate from this. What about the brain and body? Maybe that's it. The mind and the brain. Yeah, can you really separate the mind and the brain? Of course, you can have a dead brain that doesn't have a mind, but if you have a living mind, it has to have a brain. operates the entire body. Yeah, you can't separate them. You can't. It's organic. Is that kind of like other people talk about as kind of a universal consciousness? Similar, similar. Not the fellow on the top of the system. Right, 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 right. I love that art. Power for religious expression. In the beginning, God said, I like all that. But it is a little misleading as a metaphor, isn't it? That the world exists separate from God. Yes. Right. But we're all a body. Exactly. Yeah. Or Paul's great sermon that he gave at Athens there on the rock of his hill. You know, we live, move, and have our being in him, in God. Not away from, not that God acts upon, but God acts in between, or God acts through things. This was his vision of this. And it, you know, I, I think there's something very profound about this, that what he was able to see is because he knows God as a creator, and he knows creation is utterly dependent upon God. Every instant of it relies upon the creative power of God to be what it is. That he's able to see not a conflict between the world and science and God and theology. But they're really after the same thing. They're really after the same thing. Uh, I'll make an aside here. We were talking before class. You know, uh, maybe some of you were reared in other traditions. And, and this is probably... Very, you know, part of the great Anglican tradition. I know. I don't know about contemporary Anglicanism, but you know, I'm part of the Free Church tradition, and and this is not part of my tradition. And that is, uh, there's only one truth. All truth is God truth. You know, a lot of us want to say there are separate truths. There's theology truth, and then there's science truth. Well, part of the great tradition of Catholicism, and part of the great Orthodox tradition as well, is that. All truth is God truth. And so if you know something true, whether it's by mathematics or by medicine or psychology, whatever truth that is, it is an expression of God's truth. How can we put these things together? If, if, if our model is this, here's God as a watchmaker and here's the world as a watch, we will always be struggling to see how God's truth is ingrained in the truth of the world. But if there's all truth is God truth, we see God's truth evident in the truth that we can discover. And this is what he was saying. These mathematical truths reveal the creative power of God. Yes? And isn't that in the end, I can't give you the quote, Einstein said the same thing. Right. In a sense, that he, he accepted the in-betweenness. Right, right, right. Yeah. The, simple way to, the simple way to say it is, science is truth, religion is truth. If they don't agree, we've misinterpreted one of them. Right. I do think there can be, well, I don't believe in contradictions. Let me put it that way. I mean, if something's contradictory, it's not saying something like it's raining and not raining. That's not saying anything. But I do think there can be truths that are somewhat incommensable with one another without being contradictory. 
like I believe that God is a creator, but I also think they're mathematical truths. They point to the same reality. Let me put it that way. We don't need to study math to know the nature of God. We, we, we study the nature of God by knowing revelation. But by studying math, as he did, we know something about God's creative work that he has done in the world. That it's our conviction, based upon that biblical claim, in the beginning God said, let there be light. That there's an order, that we live in a world that is designed in a way that's amenable for God to be in between, to be part of our overall experience. And I think this is one of the marvelous things about our theological claim about God as a creator, that God makes the world in a way where God's not a stranger to it, an alien presence, that God's not this kind of uh, bizarre, extraordinary, whatever. And I'm, I'm cautious when using this word, supernatural. Now, of course, God's not like us. In that sense, God is supernatural. But God's not this alien being that comes down and just pushes things aside and makes room for God's own self. No, God makes the world where God can show up in it. And we believe this, don't we? The incarnation, the Word became flesh. The world has the capacity because God has designed it a way to, to house the reality of God. That's a wonderful claim to make. In some ways, now that's, that's heavy-duty theological terminology there, I think what Newton was saying is that we can experience the same truth through mathematics, that God has ingrained the world with these natural laws. He felt that nature proves God's existence. In fact, um, one of the last things he published it was actually, I mean, one of the last things he wrote, it was published posthumously after his death, was that he wanted to come up with an, a natural argument for the existence of God. He wanted to use physics here to prove that there was a God. Now, that's always a little tricky, I admit, but that's part of his conviction. It grows out of this fundamental belief that he has, that God has designed a world in which God's rationality can be experienced. Uh, let me quickly move on here. Nature's laws presuppose a cosmological lawgiver, and that's the essence or the, 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 the kernel of what he felt that uh, was the design argument for God. Um, two things. I meant to put this as a subpoint under number six. The reason why he felt that nature's laws prove a lawmaker is that if the first law of motion is true, because there is such a thing as gravity, all things stay in a straight line, okay? Until I acted upon. That's the law of inertia. Um, all right? We see things rotating. Nothing really goes in straight lines. Planets, stars, they're all rotating. So there's a bending to it. Gravity causes the bending. All right? If gravity causes the bending, eventually the strongest gravitational force will bend everything into it, which is our sun. Maybe some people believe this. I don't know. I could be out of my league in saying this, but the, that the sun one day will pull all planets into it because it's the strongest gravitational pull in our solar system. But he said from his 18th century perspective, that's not happening. Now, they follow these elliptical paths. And by the way, that, that observation that the planets follow elliptical path was sort of an intellectual stimulus for him to come up with calculus, I think. But it follows that. So there is something keeping the planets rotating at the position in which they are because their natural tendency is to follow the bend of gravity into the sun. But so far, it looks like they're following something. He felt like that was evidence that God was keeping the world in this orderly way. 
that if, it, if the law of gravity were only true, if that were the only thing making the world the way it is, eventually it would just collapse into a black hole or something like that. Some physicists, I guess, maybe argue that. But from his 18th century perspective, he was, he was befuddled, uh, mystified is a better word, mystified by the ordinance of things, not the chaos of things. Yes? Yeah. I was just going to say, the, the, uh, the mystery of this is that you have to define that by the square of the distance. It's exactly r squared. If it's just a tiny bit different, then either the right. planets right. spiral into the sun or spiral or out. Yeah, that's right. And that's so what that mystifying. Is. That's right. And that's from a physicist. So we got confirmation. Okay. Um, you know, somebody. Uh, uh, do I have this? No, that's it. Ooh, I lost it. Well. Uh, sorry. It's back on the screen. I'll just stop right there. Uh, I only had one more point. Was he a Christian too? Not just a deist? No, this is the interesting thing about him. Um, he wrote a lot on the Bible. A lot. Not many people knew much about it. Uh, he was in particular interested in Daniel and Revelation. In fact, he felt like Revelation was the first New Testament book written. There was sort of a movement in England at that time to pay attention to apocalyptic endings of the world, your Haley's comment and all that, and and prophecy, and he got really interested in prophecy, and he felt like the way to understand God was through these prophecies. So we can understand God through physics, but we can also really understand God through fulfillment of prophecies. Now, he was not a Trinitarian. This is where I wouldn't necessarily, I don't, no, I don't, I disagree with him on that. I, I think we should be Trinitarians. I think there's a good argument to be Trinitarians. It's not just a supposition. But he felt that all those things in Scripture that suggest that God was tr Trinitarian, that the Word was made flesh, was put into the Bible by Athanasius of the 4th century. That's a, that's a skewed reasoning. I don't think he was at his best when he, when he talked that way. But he was an Arian, that Jesus was adopted, not fully divine. He was non-Trinitarian. But his reason for that, those conclusions, though, is interesting. And that is... Um, they jeopardize the dominion authority of God. God has to have utter dominion. So if God is incarnate or something, things are a little out of control. I, like I said, I don't think it's one of his better conclusions. But I can understand why he wanted to argue that way. Yeah. So, Christian... Christ didn't die for our sin. Right, right. He had a hard time with that. Yeah, he was not Trinitarian. Yes? Right, right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and we should know both, by the way. Uh, I would say as a Christian, and I would consider myself an Orthodox Christian in that I believe in the Trinity um, and the great confessions of faith, uh, that gives me good reasons to even pursue science as far as it will go. Because it's, it's pursuing this wonderful world in which we live in that was made by a Creator who ordered in a way that makes it amenable for, for God's glory to be known. And that, like I said, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, probably the opposite of what I'm trying to say here, and I think what we can learn from Newton, is not a scientist who doesn't believe in God. That's not the opposite. 
But someone who thinks there is no meaning and purpose to life, everything is totally random and chaotic, senseless to begin with, despairing, nihilistic in all points. That's the real opposite of this. Because I can understand a scientist who has studied this stuff for years and years and comes to these wonderful conclusions is not a theist. I can understand that. I think there's good reasons to be a theist, to believe in a God who is a creator and science, but I can understand some scientists why they're not theists. But the opposite of the claim that we have is not atheism in that sense, but someone who says God did not create the world, that God's not the creator of the heaven and the earth. That's the opposite, that the world is just random chaos, nihilistic despairing, darkness, no hope, no reason to live, no reason to love and have justice, none of that, nothing to care for. That's the real opposite, in my opinion. So, I, you know, I meet, a, you know, let's say a scientist who's pursuing science and doesn't ever talk about God. That doesn't bother me. We should not get, you know, strong out of shape over something like that. But if somebody says, look, you, you people are fools to, to believe that there's a creator, that there's a world that has significance and purpose to it, that's the real challenge I think we have to face. All right, uh, next week I'm going to talk about, I think he's still alive, uh, Polkinghorne, who had a long celebrated career at Cambridge, very orthodox Christian. In fact, he's actually an Anglican priest as well, a scientist and a priest. I'm going to talk about some of his ideas uh, when we come back next week. But before I leave, anybody have another comment or a question? Yes, just real quickly, I didn't see the debate between uh, the creationist guy and this Bill Nye. You know, I just saw a headline the other day. I did not hear or read that. Helm, I think, was the other guy. Okay, I'll say a concluding prayer. Again, Lord, we're grateful for thy many gifts and the gift of wonder in particular. Expand our minds, O Lord, to be appreciative of this great world in which we live. And this I'm grateful. Amen.